in the patriarchal world, a woman's value is measured by her relationships with men. Mm. So it's who is her father? I mean, that's the question Boaz asks when he sees Ruth in the field, whose young woman is this? And what he wants to know is who is her father? Who is her husband? You know, and especially they would they would gauge a woman's value by counting their sons. So these women are zeros. And the answer to the question, whose woman is this, is that this is Naomi's, the widow Naomi's daughter-in-law. So hmm. she's like nothing. Friends. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, it is it is a pleasure and an honor to have you here with me today. Uh, this is episode number 95 of the podcast, and uh, it's part number 12, our very final installment of the series that we started all the way back in April, uh, Women's Voices You Need to Hear. And uh, I'm really excited because today I'm going to introduce you to a new friend of mine. Uh, her name is Carolyn Custis James, and she wrote a book called Finding God in the Margins that she's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, in the episode. So really good stuff to, to end this series on. Next week, we start a new series, a four-part series for the month of May, and uh, that series is called uh, Books My Friends Wrote. I'm going to bring on four of my friends. Uh, who wrote new books. One uh, is going to be released probably later in the spring, but he's coming on anyway to talk about it. Uh, And it's going to be a whole lot of fun. So we're going to kick it off next week with Colby Martin, who's going to come on to talk about his new book, uh, The Shift. So look forward to that. How are you? Let's, let's, let's let's, Let's land the plane there for a couple of minutes. Um, How are you doing in these crazy days that we're in? Uh, I don't know about you, but I've been stressed. Like I have been anxiety, anger, fear, all sorts of things about all the things going on in the world. Uh, I've been blogging a lot. That's one of the ways that I I process things is writing in my journal, uh, blogging, getting my thoughts kind of out there. And I've been disturbed by a lot of things going on uh, in the world, specifically with a lot of the protesting that's been going on. So I wrote a blog post about that. If you want to go check it out, whatifproject.net, uh, talked a little bit about virus type stuff and just, just a lot of feelings that I've been processing, um, lately. I live in North Carolina. They have, uh, pushed the stay at home thing back now to May 8th. Uh, they're talking about rolling out kind of a new normal in three different phases, uh, taking it very slowly. So, it seems like our leadership and our uh, state, our area of the country is is trying to think some things through. Then you have other states that are next to us, like Georgia, South Carolina. They're just kind of opening up their doors. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but here we are. And I hope that you're doing well. Uh, my love and my prayers I send to you, uh, to your family, to your loved ones. Uh, I am here. If you need to reach out to talk, I'm a human being. I am not a robot behind the microphone. So if you shoot me a message on Facebook like some of you have, uh, I'm happy to connect with you. We can talk uh, on the phone. We can do a Zoom call. We can look at each other face-to-face through the screen. Uh, so whatever whatever you need, I am here to help you in any way that I possibly 
uh, can. A few things before we jump into the episode. Uh, number one is patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show uh, financially. So if this podcast has encouraged you, inspired you, helped you evolve in your faith, uh, please consider going over there and joining the other 25 people who are supporting the show. Um, greatly appreciated. All of the money that you give uh, goes towards the podcast. So every summer I take a trip to the Wild Goose Festival, which is a gathering of progressive thinking, spiritually minded people trying to make a difference in the world. So I head over there. This year it has been postponed. Uh, it's supposed to happen in July, getting pushed to September, perhaps uh, pushed back till next summer. So we're not really too sure yet. But uh, anyway, the money helps me get there. Uh, money helps pay for all of the hosting fees for the website, uh, for the for the podcast, and also any technology that I need. So a new iPad is kind of on the horizon, as well as a new computer, probably in 2021. So all the different things to help the podcast keep on rolling. Uh, that's where all of the money goes. So please consider hopping over there and uh, joining joining the fun. What if Project Community? is a closed Facebook group uh, where you can find people who maybe like yourself are rethinking their faith, uh, thinking through some things. Uh, it's a, a gathering of people who are encouraging each other, inspiring each other, cheering each other on in their faith journeys, uh, sharing resources, sharing ideas, sharing questions, sharing doubts. Uh, nobody's in there shaming another person or trying to convert somebody. Uh, Everybody is very open-minded and it's like a big happy, growing family. We have 160-ish people in there, I think. So lots of fun. Head over there. I'll put the links to those things in the show notes, uh, as well as the What If Project store. I call it the heretic shop because uh, why not? I get called a heretic once in a while, as do people who listen to the podcast as well. So it's the heretic shop. There's heretical goodies over there with t-shirts and uh, sweatshirts and uh, mugs and stickers and blankets and backpacks and all sorts of things. So I'll put all the links to all the things um, in the show notes and uh, head over there and check it out. Uh, before we jump into the, the, the conversation, I want to read for you a small excerpt uh, from Carolyn's book. And that's one of the things I've been doing in this series, which I, I really enjoyed, is before we roll into the episode, uh, just reading you a small excerpt from maybe the guest's uh, book maybe some piece of uh, feminine theology or poetry, some kind of female voice to kind of set the tone uh, for the conversation. So this comes from uh, Carolyn's book, again, Finding God in the Margins. And it's a, a kind of a commentary on the book of Ruth. And so in the episode, she's going to talk to us about the book of Ruth and then kind of go into some of the the details and it's it's a lot of fun. I learned a lot. So anyway, here's a small excerpt. It's from a, a piece in the book called The Dark Night of the Soul. She says this, the stories and honest laments of the sufferers are in the Bible because they are instructive for us. They open the door for us to be honest with God who already knows what we're thinking and what we're feeling. We cannot have a real relationship if honesty doesn't lie at the core. And this, my friends, is episode number 95, my conversation with Carolyn Custis James. Let's roll the tape. Enjoy.
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It is great to have you here. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest today. Uh, her name is Carolyn Custis James. She's the author of a number of different books and has been quite a voice for women in the church. So, Carolyn, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to talk with you. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, me as well. So I first heard about you when you were on the Bible for Normal People podcast with Pete and Jared um, a while back. And then about six months ago, our mutual friend, Mike Morell gave me your book, Finding God in the Margins, which uh, for our listeners is a book about the story of Ruth in the Bible. And I was intrigued by it. And so I'm really excited to ask you a few questions that I had while reading. Uh, but first, if you don't mind, maybe tell us a little bit about your yourself. Who are you? What what do you do? Tell us all the things we need to know about uh, Carolyn. I'll tell you, I um, I ran into someone several years ago who knew me when I was growing up, and I had written one book, and he his jaw was on the floor because it didn't sound like how you know what I'd grown up, and it was a voice that has emerged out of my own struggles. Mm. Um, I, I was raised in the church as a, pa uh, my father was a pastor and, um, I, I really feel like my story has played out a bit like Narnia where the children get into the wardrobe and tumble out the backside and land in a place that they didn't know. And it was yeah. a strange world. So because I was raised a certain way as a, as you know, in a conservative, uh, Christian church. And especially as a, as a woman raised to look at my future in terms of marriage and motherhood mm. and 10 years of singleness that followed college was like slamming into a wall. Mm. And, um, it, it just caused me to start asking questions mm. and, um, what has happened in my life is that I have been pushed out of my comfort zone. I have been uh, launched on a quest, asking questions about what is it, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian woman? Um, what is, what is the church's message for us? And why is that? Why does that fall short? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for me, I couldn't follow the roadmap. Mm -hmm. And it was in, in hindsight, very liberating mm -hmm. because it, it made me open to, to other alternatives. And I think, you know, my landing in Narnia was um, being shoved out of my comfort zone, um, being free to do what is in front of me, um, seizing opportunities that I face instead of coming at it with here are the rules and this is, <laughs> mm. this is who you, who you are as a woman. I mean, I married a man who was raised by a single mother mm. and she had to work like crazy to support four little boys. And so for for him, you know, looking mm. at me, it was sort of, he even said this to me when we first got married. Um, he said, you need to find out what God wants you to do with your life. And I'm not the answer to that question. Mm. So, um, you know, and he's been really active and just shoving me out the door. And it's, it's, 
um, I would, I would consider myself a learner mm-hmm. and somebody who's asking a lot of questions um, and relooking at old material that I was raised on and, mm-hmm. you know, looking at from a different point of view. And I have to say it has been life giving for me. Yeah. I, you know, I think those 10 years of singleness and, the struggle with God and the struggle with, I can't, I can't fit into what, to how I was raised, um, being shoved out (laughs) has been a gift to me. Mm. And to find out you were wrong about some things that you held very strongly, it opens the door that you're wrong about some other things. And, And I just, you know, I just keep my husband and I both say this. We we want to keep learning mm. and we want to keep growing and it comes at a cost. Um, you know, because people don't like it when you make a move. And yes, it has been costly, but it's it's worth it. It's a lot of what you said strikes a chord in my heart because first of all the our, the podcast is called the What If Project and we kind of explore the question of what if there are ways of thinking about things and understanding things that are different than the ways our traditions have handed us. And Mm -hmm. as I've gone and explored different things, what you said about it being so freeing, I have found that to be so true of myself. So that really strikes a chord with me. But also what you said about, you know, we kind of when we fail to meet expectations that have been set for us or that we feel have been set for us, um, when we fail to meet those, that can kind of start us asking questions and lead us in all, to alternative paths. And I've my story obviously completely different than yours because I'm I'm a man, and but at the same time, like when I went to seminary, I told you earlier I went to Alliance Theological Seminary, and as an MDiv student, you know most MDiv students go and they go on to pastor a church, and so that's kind of the was almost like the expectation that was there. And I think I even had that expectation in my own mind, but I went to pastor church and I found that it wasn't really, um, didn't really feel, didn't really feel at home there. I didn't really feel like that was what I was wired to do. And so I, I mm. felt like I failed the expectation in a sense. I felt like when I left the church, I felt like a failure. I failed to meet the expectations set before me, but that led me to alternate paths. Uh, one of those paths 10 years later being what we're doing right now, having this conversation that has been so freeing for me and has opened up my heart in so many different ways. So I really find myself, as you're telling your story, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think it frees us up to say, what does God want me to do now? Yeah. And, you know, for me, I went to seminary too, and I worked in a church for a couple of years, and then that's where I met my husband, and we went off to you know, he was doing his academic um, education, two doctorates. Wow. And <laughs> I, I ended up being the breadwinner and I, I did a, I did a detour and ended up in software development and mm. um, was the breadwinner for what a good first 13 years of our marriage. And um, I loved it. It was, it was incredible. And mm. um you know, and then, and then all, all of a sudden when opportunities started coming for um, ministry, 
and a lot of things had been simmering over those years. And um, I went in a different direction than I ever would have imagined. Mm -hmm. And um, it just, I, you know, doors opened and my husband would say, go. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, and I, it was, it was terrifying because it involved public speaking. And that was something I would never have chosen. Hmm. And it ultimately involved writing books. And that was something I never thought of doing. Um, but it, you know, it has been clearly what God has wanted me to do and everything has led to that. Um, but it's, yeah, I think, you know, it's, we don't, we don't know where our paths are going to go. And, you know, if we lock in and say it has to be like this, then we're setting ourselves up for discouragement and mm. failure instead of, you know, no, God is turning the corner with me and I need to go where he's taking me. And, you know, in times like this, when we really don't know what the outcome is going to be of, of all of this um, coronavirus is, yeah. is that, um, you know, we're, we may lead very different lives than what we expected to lead. And, you know, to be able to embrace where God is taking us and not punishing ourselves for, you know, not being able to bang down a door we thought we were supposed to go through. I think mm. God means for us to be like that. And he takes us places we didn't mean to go, but it's, you know, it's, it's how it works. And what a gift to have, like you said, your husband who, when those doors open, he says, go. Yeah. Uh, my wife has been the same way for me. You know, my wife was there uh, with me at the church. We were engaged at that point, but, um, you know, she was walking with me through this whole journey. And every time a door has opened or seems like a curveball has come or a different path has been revealed, she's been the first one to say, you know, you got to go, you got to do, you got to do it. Yeah. Well, and were podcasts happening then? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, no, not really. <laughs> it's a new, it's a new, it's a new world. And um, yeah, good for you. Thank you. So uh, your book, Finding God in the Margins, um, as, we, as I said, is a commentary uh, on the book of Ruth, a commentary of sorts. And so to start us off, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us, tell us the story. Give us a quick summary of what the story of Ruth is about, maybe for people who aren't super familiar with the story, who are our key characters, uh, what are the main events that we need to have in mind? Um, there are actually different versions of the book of Ruth, hmm. but if you're if you're just reading it, it starts out to be the story of a family, a man two, and his wife and two sons who are um, Israelites and there's a famine and they become famine refugees. They go to Moab, which is today's Jordan. And there it's just, it ends up being one disaster after another. So the first thing is that the husband dies. So the wife is widowed and the story shifts at that point from being his story to being her story, his wife's story. Naomi is her name. And she has two sons and they marry Moabite girls. They're pagan girls. And, um, and the, and 
they go through 10 years of double infertility, which is an utter calamity in the ancient world because the, there's just an urgency to produce sons. Mm. And we'll get, in, we'll get into that in a minute. But um, anyway, double infertility for two years, it's an utter calamity. Both women would be certifiably barren at that point. Um, but then instead of a positive pregnancy te- test, both sons die. So what what you have is this, the stage is cleared of the men and you just have women, which at that point you would say, there's no story here. I mean, all 90% of biblical stories are, are about men yeah, and only 10% about women, but that's when the biblical camera zooms in and the story heats up. Hmm. Okay. So, so Naomi decides she's going to go back home to Bethlehem. The famine is over and the girls are legally bound to her as um, the widows of her sons. And halfway between Jordan and Israel, she emancipates them and she is determined to send them back home because there's only going to be suffering ahead in Bethlehem and they'll be, um, they'll be undocumented uh, immigrants essentially. Hmm. And so one, one of her daughters-in-law is convinced to go back, but Ruth refuses. And it's, um, it's a conversion moment for her where she embraces Naomi and Naomi's people and Naomi's God. Hmm. And when they get back into Bethlehem, um, Ruth ends up going out in the field to scavenge to get food. So she's scavenging for barley. And the field is owned by the third major character in the story, and that's Boaz. And he owns the field. And um, it's the legal system in Israel allows for... Um, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner to follow harvesters and pick up what's left Mm. after the harvesters clear the field. And, um, And Ruth, as the story is typically interpreted, the entrance of Boaz into the story, and he's introduced as a man of 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 valor, a man of significance in terms of his wealth and his power. And of course he's, he's a man in that mm-hmm. culture. And so um, he's a powerful figure. And, um, and that's when typical sermons will start talking about a budding romance between the widowed Ruth and Boaz. Yeah. And they have a conversation in the field and she, he ends up um, being generous with her so that she takes home um, a load of, of, of grain to feed her mother-in-law and is invited to go back to his field um, to continue throughout the entire harvest. Mm. And the third, that's the second chapter and the third chapter of the story is when Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz at the threshing floor in the dead of night. She is to be um, dressed in her best dress, no longer dressed as a widow. She, that is to signal 
her readiness for marriage, everybody sort of portrays Naomi as, um, you know, a grump in the first chapter. <laughs> she's railing against God for, for being against her and all of her horrible losses. Here she kind of comes, spots this romance happening and plays matchmaker. And I'm talking about the traditional interpretation of this book. Hmm. So that it's interpreted as a romance where when they meet in the barley field, their eyes lock and they fall in love. And Ruth goes to the threshing floor at night and proposes marriage to him. And they get married and she has a baby boy. And um, now it's sort of a happily ever after. I that's mean, how I was always taught about it. Yeah. That's is sort of the perfect Cinderella story. And that's yeah. how I was taught about it too. And then I started learning about the latest research on the book of Ruth. Hmm. And it's, it, I have to tell you, and I wrote this in that book that it went off like a bomb in my life. Hmm. And, um, I, the power of this book has been completely diminished by Western American interpretations. And I think that's what a lot of us are struggling with mm. is that we have a very Americanized Christianity and it has drained power out of it. And it is because the, the book of Ruth is one of the most powerful examples of the gospel of Jesus in the Old Testament. Mm. And here's how it changes. When Naomi loses her husband and her two sons, and she's a famine refugee, and she's got these two barren daughters-in-law. Um, if, you, if you read the story against the backdrop of the patriarchal world, it becomes a Job story, the story of a female Job. Patriarchy is about male rule over women and children and really over a few men over other men. Hmm. So it's not, it's not just over women. But, you know, when you have a story where all the men are killed off, like I said, it's like there's no story there. Yeah. Naomi, Naomi knows that. She's going home to die and she feels like she's lost God in the process because, you know, she's produced two sons that secures their family for another generation. And now her sons are dead and she's past childbearing years. Mm. And, you know, for Ruth to stay with her, it's, you know, it's her embrace of God while Naomi is saying the almighty has raised his hand against me and, and is ordering her daughters-in-law to go back. Hmm. You know, it's just, it's sort of like the evangelist on duty is saying all the wrong things. And Ruth is drawn to God and, you know, it's a, it's a shock to the Bethlehemites because, you know, they've sort of grown up with this and it's not, compelling to them like it is mm. to her but you know she arrives in bethlehem and really what she's asking in is what does it mean mm. to be a follower of yahweh and and so when she goes to boaz in the field she's she doesn't want to take home scraps to her mother-in-law she's a scavenger 
And if she's going to stay a scavenger to pick up the scraps, you know, what's she going to take home to Naomi? Hmm. Maybe a fistful, maybe nothing. Hmm. So she's asking for special permission to glean glean where the harvesters have just cut down the grain. And Boaz gets what she's asking. And the conversations with Boaz are all about the Mosaic law and the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And when, when, when Ruth goes home that day, she's carrying 29 pounds of winnowed barley. Hmm. And we know that according to ancient Babylonian records, she would have, um, it would have taken a male harvester a half a month or a full month to take home that much in pay. Hmm. You know, it's really an overflow of generosity. And it's the moment Naomi's hope in God revives, and it's so powerful. But what was what was the game changer for me was that scholars are saying that Ruth, and it's absolutely true, is initiating the action in the Book of Ruth. That she's the leader. You know, they all interpretations simply look at Boaz, and as soon as he shows up, it's sort of like we got the leader here, and we got the hero of the story. Um, but the, the, the book of Ruth is, is about God. It's about a questions, questions a woman is asking that God has turned against her. And she is, her, her questions about God are answered by the actions of Ruth and Boaz and how they both sacrifice for her. Mm. Yeah, that's where she revived. I mean, there's no prophet. There's no priest. Mm. The book of Ruth is about people doing the next right thing. And it's all, you know, takes place in the workplace and the legal system. Ultimately, the story ends up being about sacrifice. And mm. the love of God is is a sacrificial, voluntary, costly love. And that's what Ruth and Boaz and Naomi are showing for one another. Mm. It's a picture of the gospel, but for me as a woman to read in the Bible that a woman is the leader in the story, and it's not, you know, some Queen Esther or, you know, Judge Deborah. It's it's an undocumented immigrant. Yeah. <laughs> it draws a, huh. a bigger circle of that conversation, it was a game changer for me. Hmm. When, when, I, when I learned that about her, I had to rethink my whole life. Because hmm. I was taught that initiate was not a word to be in my vocabulary because I was a woman. You know, it just, it's like I said, it's made me ask questions about what does it mean to be a woman who's an image bearer of God? What does it mean to be a man who bears God's image? How does that, how does that embolden us to do more for others? Hmm. Um, you know, and it's not about, it's not about me, my, I, it's about what does God want us to do as his image bearers? Hmm. You know, it's, it's about that we are created to represent him, to look after things in his world. It means that what happens in God's world is our business, you know, and, and it also means that the slightest thing 
matters. Yeah. I mean, what, what is Ruth doing? She's picking up scraps of grain to take home to her mother-in-law. Hmm. She's not preaching sermons. She's not leading a movement, but her actions are actually moving the purposes of God forward for the world. You know, so it's when I look at her, I'm convicted that what I do matters, that I have responsibility, that I'm not just a spectator, but that that I'm that I'm supposed to look around and pay attention and that I don't know what God does through me. Mm. You know, I mean, how, how would Ruth and Naomi and Boaz know that what their actions were doing was producing the grandfather of King David and that Naomi would raise him on the theology she learned in the school of suffering, Mm. Um, you know, or that that would lead to the Messiah. Mm. You know, but their actions matter. Their actions matter. Mm. And ours too. And I think, you know, we think we know who the big shots are and who the people are who are doing the important things. But it's, we don't know where God's doing the important things. And it might be an, an undocumented immigrant, you know? Yeah. I love this book because like I said before, I know I I went to seminary. I've heard, obviously we studied the book of Ruth, um, but it was always, most of it came from the angle of a love story. And a lot of the applications kind of went in that direction, but your book peels back multiple layers of that onion and, and it really reveals something much, much deeper. And I think if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, the story is, it's really about a, a woman in a man's world, right? Because you mentioned that word patriarchy, which we can dive into in a minute, but kind of a, a woman who seemingly would have been kind of like a, a nobody because like you said, she's undocumented. She's doing minimal work out in a field, uh, doing kind of nobody's like, work. It's like somebody scavenging in a garbage can outside. Yeah. The world. Right. Looking for a leftover bite of Big Mac. Yeah. You know, it's like they're the low lives. They, they, you know, and the fact in the patriarchal world, a woman's value is measured by her relationships with men. Mm. So it's who is her father? I mean, that's the question Boaz asks when he sees Ruth in the field. Whose young woman is this? And what he wants to know is who is her father, who is her husband, you know, and especially they would, they would gauge a woman's value by counting their sons. Mm. So these women are zeros. And the answer to the question, whose woman is this, is that this is Naomi's, the widow Naomi's daughter-in-law. So mm. she's like nothing. She's got no man attached to her at all. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. In fact, that puts them at huge risk. And, even the book of Ruth says, you know, she needs to stay in his field because if she went to another field, she could be harmed. Mm. So even in Bethlehem, you know, you could get raped or, or beaten up in, in the fields of the people of God. You know, Me Too stories exist in Christian environments, even in our day. Yeah. So what a great story this is then for 
maybe even the person who's listening who feels like they're a nobody, whether they're a, a woman, whether they're even a man uh, who feels like they're doing minimal work out in the field. Yeah. Like, like you said, yeah. you never know what that minimal work might lead to. And I think the power of the story is that, that God works through those people. Yeah. Well, yeah. even when you think, when you think of your own story, hmm. you know, who, who are the people who have been influential in your life and do they know, hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of them don't know Yeah, that God used them to change your life or redirect you or just enrich you. Hmm. You know, so it does, it does happen. But I think, you know, one of the most important points about how we read the Bible as Americans is that we read the Bible at a huge disadvantage hmm. because we are as foreign to the world of the Bible as you can get in today's world. And that what we've done in the church is that we have, we see patriarchy on just about every page of the Bible. I don't mm. think it's on the first two pages, but, but every other page we see it, it emerges after the fall and we've interpreted it as the Bible's message, a kinder, gentler patriarchy is the Bible's message. And I think the, that patriarchy is a fallen system and it is the backdrop to the Bible's message. Because if you, if you, if you don't understand that world, well, let me say it the other way. If you, if you look at the stories, the narratives in the Bible against that backdrop, it unleashes a power that we completely miss as mm. Westerners and Americans. You know, because what's the big deal for there to be a story about women in our day? But in that day, you know, and for them to be agents in what God is doing in the world is absolutely subversive and radical. Mm. And, you know, for a man like Boaz to be taking cues from Ruth and he learns from her because she brings a different point of view because of her poverty and her health and her powerlessness mm. um, to the, to Mosaic law. Yeah. And every time he's, he is, following the letter of the law and she leads him beyond the letter to the spirit, you know, in, in every situation. I mean, he, he becomes an even better man because of his interactions with her. Hmm. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a thing away from him. He's very powerful. And actually in the end, he's even more powerful, but his, he uses his power to empower her. And, and that's life-changing for Naomi. Can you give us a, a, maybe a kind of a working definition for patriarchy? Because we've used that word um, a few times. And I, I feel like it's, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like these days it's like a, almost like a buzzword that gets tossed around. And especially like on social media when different discussions or debates are going on, I see that word pop up a lot. And I'm not even sure people know exactly what it refers to when they use it. So. Uh, what yeah. exactly, how would you define patriarchy? Well, the word itself means father rule. And under patriarchy, men are advantaged over women. Hmm. And 
you know, like I said, a woman is defined by her relationship with men and her contribution to the world is to produce sons. And this is still happening in today's world in places like Africa and India and, mm -hmm. you know, where they don't want daughters, they want sons, they want sons. Um, you know, the China one child law was, you know, caused the deaths of millions of little baby girls because mm -hmm. they had one shot at a child and they wanted a boy. And um, a woman told me she was a, uh, she's a um, obstetrical nurse. And she said when she worked, she worked in India for a while. And she said, when a baby boy was born, there would be jubilation, noisy celebrations. Girl was born. She would have to persuade the mother to pick up the baby. Mm. So wow. it, you know, and, and brides can be beaten if they deliver only girls or they don't get pregnant. So, you know, the story of the book of Ruth is an utter calamity when they're both girls are infertile. But anyway, it's, it's about male rule and, and privilege, and it depends on female subordination. Mm. And, you know, we've sort of modified it, but it allows for polygamy. We've got polygamy in the stories in the Bible. Um, we have, um, you know, the men are the ones who are the standouts, but the Bible keeps subverting that because mm. the female stories end up being really important and earth shaking when, when they happen. And, um, you know, the, in, under the creation narrative, men and women were created to rule creation together. They weren't created to rule each other. But after the fall, you know, when, when humanity falls, then men begin ruling over, over women. And the first um, thing that we read in the Bible is the murder of one, one brother murdering his brother. Mm. And, and one of the things that drives the book of Genesis is that um, primogenitor privileges the firstborn son so that the firstborn son is like the crown prince and he mm. gets twice as much inheritance as his brothers. And so, you know, that's what you have warring brothers all the way through Genesis. And they, that's what they're fighting over mm. is, you know, who's who's, who's number one. And it, you know, God doesn't, God, God keeps subverting it. He doesn't, he doesn't choose Cain. He, he, he blesses Abel. You mm. know, it's not, it's not Ishmael. It's Isaac. It's not Esau. It's Jacob. It's not Reuben, Simeon and Levi. It's Judah who ends up being the, the one who is the kingly line. But Joseph is treated as the firstborn and he's son number 11 mm. and David is seven, you know, so the Bible isn't the Bible, the Bible is dismantling patriarchy. It's mm. doing it every time a woman sets out, sets foot on the pages of scripture and it's doing it in how God is moving. And, you know, it's not the Bible's message. It's the backdrop and it and it unleashes a much more powerful understanding of these stories. Yeah, I think that's a key key point. That's one of the things that really stuck out to me in the book is um, you said that it has that the the patriarchy is the backdrop of 
the stories of the Bible. It's not what the Bible is teaching us is the right way. And right. I think that a lot of times we, we get that confused, right? Like I look, I mean, even, I mean, just to bring it into a present day, like I know a few months ago was the, the hot topic was John MacArthur and what he was saying about Beth Moore should go home, you know, and there's this very strong idea that the Bible is teaching us patriarchy when in reality, it's not teaching it to us. It's subverting it. It's just the backdrop that the stories take yeah. place upon. Yeah. Well, and, and, and what is replacing patriarchy is the gospel. Yeah. So it's not like, okay, we're going to swing the pendulum in another direction. We're going to give the power to women or we're getting, you know, it's, it's, it's that we put the interests of others ahead of ourselves. Mm. That is what is happening in the book of Ruth. You know, Ruth is fighting for Naomi. The vow that she makes in the first chapter drives every decision she makes. Mm. She's fighting for Naomi. And Boaz is listening to Ruth and he's he gets what she's doing and it means that he has to make really big sacrifices hmm. for Naomi, for Naomi's sake. Hmm. And, um, and Naomi comes to a point where she is so concerned about Ruth's future that she's willing to give her up when Ruth is all she has. Yeah. She wants to give her up so that she can, find a husband and be under a male umbrella and be secure. Mm. All of them are, are giving up. So it's, you know, it's, it's not that, that, that the answer to patriarchy is some kind of, um, you know, women rule or, you know, that we want the power now. Sure. It's that we all use whatever power God gives us to empower others, to look after his world to move toward the way God wants wanted his world to be in the beginning and the way he's moving it forward now. Mm. You know, we become part of that. Mm. I mean, I for me, the book of Ruth is is it's a bomb. <laughs> it just explodes. <laughs> yeah. I keep learning from it. You know, I one of the things I've learned since writing two books about it is that um it all takes place in the workplace in the legal system. Mm. You know, and we're very, we're very churchy in how we think about where you do the important things, but you know, our work matters. Yeah. And huh. God, you know, and we're learning that more than ever now when we can't work, mm. you know, that we're made for this and that the very work we do matters. It's not just that we're honest when we work or that, you know, we, we witness to our colleagues, but it's that the very work we do is, is what God calls us to as, as, as image bearers. Mm. So, you know, for me, it just enriches all of life. And I think, you know, we, we have so Americanized the message of the Bible that we've, that we've lost the beauty of it and we've lost the wholeness of it. And, um, we've lost that it makes us more fully human than, you know, all this other stuff that we think that is, you know, what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. And there's more to learn, you know? I mean, yeah. when you think about when, when knowing God is what we are called to do and then to emulate 
what he loves and what he cares about that, you know, we're just on the very fringes of what there is to know about him. Mm. And, you know, to assume we have mastered anything is in it's, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. I had a professor once who said, you know, whenever you, whenever you have God in such a box where you think, you know, everything about him, you have all the answers, you have your systematic theology built. You're probably no longer dealing with God. Yeah. Because God is so much bigger, like you said, than anything we could really wrap our fingers around. Yeah. You know, we need to learn from people who come to us from other cultures. Yes. That we can learn from them more about how we understand the Bible. Mm. And that we, as Americans, need to be humble when, when we open our Bibles and recognize that we're foreigners to this world. And, you know, the best sermon I ever heard on the book of Ruth was preached by a woman from Nigeria. Because, <laughs> hmm. I, you know, when somebody says they're going to preach on the book of Ruth, I just groan. Right. You're like, here we go. <laughs> More Cinderella, right. you know, that, that doesn't make sense. We're none of us living Cinderella stories. And, yeah. But anyway, but she knows the world of widows. She knows what widowhood is like in some of these countries and the dangers that widows face. Um, yeah. Mm, wow. Well, Carolyn, I have a ton more questions for you, so we're going to have to have you back on again. But we are uh, nearing the end of our time, and I, I thank you for sharing so much of your, of your heart and your passion for Ruth, because I had, and you know, because I sent you my questions ahead of time, I had questions for you. But when I heard your passion kind of come out uh, for the story, I was like, I just want to sit here and listen to you. So thank you for sharing it with me. Thank you, Glenn. I, it's an honor to, I just love talking about this. I guess I can, can tell. tell. I can oh, tell. Yeah. I, it's just been so life changing for me. And it continue, I continue to learn from this story. It's just rich. Yeah. And before you go, where can people um, find you online? And maybe what are a couple of your other books that you might want to point people to? Okay. My um, website is carolyncustisjames.com. Okay. And the books are all listed there, but um, so I have seven of them out and um, the there's another book on Ruth. It's called the gospel of Ruth. There's a book that I wrote about God, God's vision in Genesis one and two for women called half the church. And it's in part a response to Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Dunn's book, half the sky, Hmm. uh, which is what's happening to women and girls. But I just, you know, I wanted to know what is God's vision for his daughters and is it big enough for all of us and for Hmm. our whole lives? Um, And it is. And then I wrote a similar book for men about men um, called Maelstrom, M-A-L-E, male, S-T-R-O-M. And um, it's about what does it mean to be a man, um, not a man who lives according to patriarchy, but uh, the gospel. And mm. the stories of men in the Bible that we've walked past are just breathtaking. And I just love these men. Um so anyway, those are that'll get people started. I would love um thank you. I would yeah. love to 
I'm going to put those, yeah, I'm going to put those in the show notes and uh, Maelstrom is on my list. So I'm going to read that and I will get back to you with some questions, I'm sure. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We'll continue the conversation. That would be great. Thank you, Carolyn, for dropping by. This has been wonderful. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye.